You are listening to the message by Antioch Centre for the Nations. For more information, please visit www.antiochcenterforthenations.org. Thank you. The title of the message is, is The Gospel. And I know we all know this term. We've often, uh, you know, we use the word gospel. We talk about gospel. And uh, we, we say that, you know, we believe in the gospel or that uh, the, the gospel is uh, our, what we believe. But there's some details about the gospel that I wanted us to, to look at as the Lord was leading me and uh, guiding me these days. I begin to see some interesting things, and I'm really dividing the gospel uh, message up that we're doing. That's why it says part one, because as I got into the study, the information that I was receiving was so much, and I was trying to do an introduction to this theme, and it ended up becoming a whole message. And so we're going to look at that, and the best way to do this is just to get right into it, and let me explain to you the gospel part one. Matthew twenty four fourteen says, "In this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come." Uh, we all know that we seem to be living in the last days, but I would also caution you with that mentality because people have always thought they were living in the last days. You read the letters that Paul wrote to Thessalonians and also to the other churches, and he spoke as if Jesus were coming back tomorrow. And I think that's a healthy perspective for us to keep. I was taught when I was a young Christian that we should have two simple ideas. We should live as if Jesus is not coming for a hundred years. That way we are smart, we make plans, we strategize, we have vision, we have dreams, we live those dreams. But also we should live as if he's coming back tomorrow. Uh, because he will come like a thief in the night. We have to be ready for that. And it says that this gospel will be preached. This gospel, this is the first time the word gospel appears in the Bible. And most of us identify ourselves really with the name Christian. And um, how many, if I said, are you a Christian, would you raise your hand? Most of us would say, yeah, I'm a Christian. Because we believe in Jesus. And so I've been really thinking a lot about Christianity or Christendom, you could call it, the kingdom of people believing in Christ named Christian. And there is a shift, it turns out right now, around the world that more than ever before people are disinterested in Christianity. And in the United States of America, vast numbers of young people, the new generation, there's a 20% decrease in church people. And they're actually outright deciding that they are not interested in church. They're not interested in Christianity. And these are people that were raised as Christians. And they're making these choices for different reasons. Uh, when you really closely examine the reasons why, at least what they're saying, you kind of understand why they've been turned off a little bit. Within some realms of certain denominations, there's been many scandals, um, you know, sexual perversions and difficulties and even pedophilia and such, these pretty gruesome things that have caused people to no longer be associated with a group that has that or that allows that. And that really has been one of the issues is that it seemed there have been an allowance of these things through the years. And so there's been a huge shift. And that denomination that I'm referring to is really one of the greatest 
losers these days to people that are associated with that religion. It's still very powerful. But there are other Christian groups also under the, under the name Christian that are suffering and people just are frankly not interested. And so this has been something the Lord's been showing me more and more. Remember when we were in uh, Fiesta of Fire, the Lord spoke concerning Daniel and how Daniel was embedded in the culture of Babylon. But in that culture, he did not propagate or try to teach Judaism. But he simply lived his life for God the best he could. And as a result, God was able to use him in the way that he could represent Jehovah God. So what the Lord showed me was that he represented Yahweh. And Jehovah actually became the identified only real God by the leadership of the whole nation as a result. That the king declared there is no other God but the God of Daniel. And so he was very successful. Let's just say if he were a missionary, that's probably the most successful missionary I've ever seen. Imagine if you could cause an entire nation, because of your influence and how you represent Jesus, a nation to decide that the nation will say that your God or Jesus is the one true Lord and God of all. That's what Daniel experienced. But he didn't experience it propagating or teaching Judaism. He lived it. Mind you, he had his personal convictions, and that was the whole issue. He was found to be superior, and part of that was he insisted on not eating the king's fare, and he wanted to, to keep basically eat kosher food the best he could. And as a result of keeping those convictions, God blessed him. And within that realm of the Babylonians, the Chaldean culture, he excelled and God used it. So I think of the same that we're seeing this shift within Christianity. It's in, and we're going to find that uh, living within realms where Christianity is no longer popular or is fading does not mean that you cannot represent Jesus. Jesus can be represented whether we do it through Christianity or not. And that's a really hard thing for people to hear, especially if all their life they've been called Christian and they feel very Christian. And I will raise my hand if somebody asks if I'm Christian, I say, yeah. If Christian means that I believe in Jesus and I believe that he died for me and that he was buried and he rose again, if that's what you call Christian, well, then I'm Christian. But there's some complications about that. Uh, I know, for instance, we're going to look at some passages here in Acts eleven twenty six 26 says, uh, for an entire year, they met with others in the church and instructed large numbers. And it was in Antioch that the disciples were first called Christians. So we see the name disciple, which is someone who learns. This is um, that, that uh, the one that learns based upon someone's teachings. They were students, if you would. And then they were called Christians. Now, this specifically means that they were called by someone this term Christian. However, they did not call themselves Christians. And most theologians agree that they were named Christians from the outside. Now, what's interesting about this Christianos, um, this Greek word for Christians, which basically means diminutive Christ or small Jesus, uh, it's not a bad reputation to have. If somebody calls you a little Jesus, I would be happy to carry that reputation. But we're focusing for, on this Greek word. The Greek word for Christian only appears three times in the Bible. Once is here, and here Luke explains in his narrative of the book of Acts 
the history of the church that the adherents of the gospel were named Christians at that location in Syria. So in the region of Antioch, people from the outside heard about these people who were obviously preaching and sharing the gospel with them. And so they, all they talked about is Jesus, the Christ, the Christ this, the Christ that. And so I remember in Mexico when we were there, uh, the believers in Jesus had a tendency to overuse the word hallelujah. And so the people outside of the church named church people the hallelujahs. So they would refer to us as the hallelujahs. And, oh, you're part of the hallelujahs. And so just like they did with the Christians, they did with us in that region in Mexico where I was, where we planted churches. We didn't call ourselves the hallelujahs. I would never do that because it's just kind of a silly name. I don't, you know, hey, let's just call ourselves the hallelujahs. So I think it was a similar thing that happened with the people in Antioch. that They were called Christians, but they just took it and said, oh, I guess it could be worse. You can, you get them, so it's okay with me. But we see the second mention, that's the first mention, the second mention is in Acts 26, 28. And Agrippa said to Paul, in a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? Now, of course, here this is when Paul was sharing the gospel with him. And Paul preached the gospel, the story of Jesus to Agrippa. And Agrippa was interested enough to call upon him over a number of times to hear more from him. Now, Luke believed and wrote in the book of Acts that he did this because he was hoping to receive some bribe from him. Because Saul of Tarsus was not a simple man. He was an educated man and seemingly connected to higher culture and therefore probably money. So because the system was so corrupt, they would depend upon bribes. So they would hold you until you were willing to pay a bribe to be released. And that's what Agrippa was waiting for. But Paul used it to his advantage as he did all hardships in his life. And he just sought opportunities to spend more times sharing the gospel with King Agrippa. And so as this went on for some time, we see that finally Paul is bringing him to the point or closing the net where he's encouraging him to receive the gospel, receive Jesus. Paul doesn't say this, but he says in that moment, in a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? So he's using the term that the world was calling the believers at Antioch. There's only one other time that we see it in the Bible, in 1 Peter 4, 16. But if anyone suffers ill treatment as a Christian because of his belief, he is not to be ashamed, but is to glorify God because he is considered worthy to suffer in this name. Now, here's another reference, and if you notice the language that Peter's using, he's referring it to a kind of a derogative term, that when they mock you and persecute you and make fun of you, they're going to call you Christian, but he's saying this is the best uh, moment that the word receives in the sense that as Christian, now, if you do a search in your Bibles, the word Christian, in fact, you will find many references, but they're not in Bible, they're in headings of passages. So the people who compiled the passages were very fond of this term Christian. And so are the church fathers. When I say church fathers, that's all of our church fathers over the last hundreds of years or even 2,000 years. By the time the Antiochian believers in Syria received this term Christian or this name Christian, it caught on and later generations just started using it and it became an understanding or it became a name that stuck. 
but Luke is explaining it here. They're, they're this name, they didn't give it to themselves, but they received it and said, okay, could be worse. And that's exactly what Peter says. Don't worry about it. If they call you Christian, then just suffer with that because that's, that's okay because of your belief. He's not a, he is not to be ashamed. In other words, the shame of it was not so much that they believed in Jesus as much as the shame of being branded with this name. So it really starts shedding a different light on this term, doesn't it? And these are the only places in the Bible that the word is mentioned, period. Nowhere else is the word Christian used. Christianos. So after thinking about this question, because I, 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 the question I ask is the people mark themselves or they were marked as little Christs, and that's not bad. However, uh, consider that we use this term almost exclusively to describe our culture, don't we? Almost exclusively, we always refer to ourselves as Christian. And I'm not contending with the use of the word to describe your culture. There's nothing wrong with that. In fact, the religions of the world are named, and ours is named Christian. So that same name that was used many years ago is the name used to call us today. Even when you fill out certain applications or you, you travel, if sometimes they want to know your religious affiliation and they put there, there's a tick or a checkbox next to Christian, Hindu, Muslim, atheist or whatever. And they, they sometimes will ask and what now is the political structure of the world and grows. They're no longer asking such questions because they see it as a bit invasive. But still, this word Christian, as I was thinking, why? Why do we use it? Why would we use that word to describe who we are when, it, in fact, in the Bible is very rare? And this is not the only time you see this pattern in the Bible versus Christian culture. Because Christians use many terms to name elements of the body of Christ that are not in the Bible. So that means that there is a culture surrounding something at a base level that is connected to Jesus that man has taken and has named what he wants to name it. So I'm trying to help us to understand some important things. And I'm not, I'm not disqualifying the beautiful heritage and history of the body of Christ called Christianity. But I want us to consider this in light of what I'm about to teach you about something else called the gospel. And so after thinking about the question, why would we use this term, I, I concluded that it's probably because we have no responsibility or clear accountability of action in claiming the culture of Christianity and our involvement in Christendom. In other words, if we are Christian, we do not have to prove something to someone. Christendom or the Christian world, in the widest sense, it means Christianity as a territorial phenomenon. So the term primarily is used by governments to describe people who carry this belief system. So those countries and regions where most people are believers in Christ are referred to as Christian countries. My country formerly was known as a Christian nation. Whereas I just mentioned, there's a huge slide in the change, and it is only going to continue, they guess, within the next generation that it, we will be a minority, if the name Christian connected to that. But yet you do see churches, you do see growth, you do see people believing. So th these are all things I've been thinking a lot about as we're moving into a whole new day. I believe we're on the cusp of a metamorphosis of culture connected to Jesus. I believe that we are stepping into a whole new day 
where people are going to relate to Jesus in a way that's different. If you were to go back to the day that Jesus was alive and just post-Christ church environment, the way that people thought about the believers and the way that they related to the believers is very different than it is today. And so that means that the social placement of believers in Jesus has evolved many times through the years, changing constantly. So I think we are moving into a kind of a new realm. And now this does not concern me when it comes to my faith, you understand, nor should it concern you about what you believe. You're saved. If you believe in Jesus, you're washed in the blood of the Lamb. You know that the sins have been taken away and your names are written in the Lamb's book of life. You're safe. Don't worry about it. What it really affects and will affect is how we connect to people who are not yet saved by the blood of Jesus. Because the stigma that is connected to who we are by name will be the very thing that causes people to disqualify the information coming out of our mouth. There's coming a time that if you even say you are a Christian, that you will be rejected. We'll say, well, that's just the price we have to pay for, the, for believing in Jesus. Not necessarily. There's tact and care. I'm not talking about compromise, but I'm talking about God's wisdom to know how to operate. Paul said when he was with the Gentiles, he lived as a Gentile. When he's with the Jews, he lives as a Jew. He said he became all things to all people. We're looking at drastically different cultures. That he lived like a Gentile, with them, eating unclean food, and living like them. But when he was with Jews and, and fellowshipping with them, he would simply live according to that culture. And he learned how to change to fit that culture and go into it. That's the great apostle Paul. Peter learned to do it too, but he dissimulated, as it says in Galatians later, when he got busted by the Jews that came and caught him, he backed off. And that confused the Gentiles. Hey, weren't you just eating pork? And now suddenly you're the great Jew and you don't eat pork? And they were confused, and Paul got mad at him for that. So Peter was still learning how to do that. Paul learned how to adjust and maneuver in different social settings. Why? That he might win some, he said. That I've learned how to do this, he said, so that he could bring the gospel successfully to people. Now, Christians, those of us Christians, once again, I'm not divorcing myself from that name at this moment. I'm just saying that our culture has a tendency, though, that if anyone tries to adapt to a culture where people are lost to reach them, they begin to criticize those people as selling out or compromising their beliefs. But I've also worked in contextualized movements in going deep into areas where people work in other religions where Christianity is absolutely not accepted and you're in danger even from mentioning it if you are that. But I found in those cultures, I won't name the culture, but you'll figure it out. I, I have worked extensively in that culture, and I have had opportunities to clearly talk about Jesus. Clearly. For hours, with fascinated people listening. As long as I steered clear of the church heritage branding of Christianity. But the message then, if there's only three mentions of the word in the Bible referring to that, then there's something deeper, something more important, and that's where I'm going with this concept of gospel. 
And I think Jesus was telling those of the Judean religion of Judaism uh, that they should not say, and he said, this is Matthew chapter 3, verse 7, but when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees, Jews, Judaism, coming to where he was baptizing, he said to them, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance, and do not think you can say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. And the axe is already at the root of the trees, and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. So this is interesting because being a part of a social grouping or uh, a nominal Jewish person like these guys are coming in, they felt that their belonging to their culture was sufficient to save them. They felt that their eternity was intact by simply blood, being born into that culture, and being called Jews. And Jesus went after this. And he said, it's not about that name that you're wearing. It's about the fruit worthy of repentance. What are you doing with your life? And that's why he said, don't think that you can just say, he says, do not think you can say to yourselves. In other words, self-consoling. I'm okay. I'm okay because whew, Abraham's my father. And Jesus went out. He says, no, you can't just settle in that. There's issues you have to be concerned about. And I think Jesus was telling them this, that they should not say that Abraham was their father. It means as a means of salvation because it wasn't. It was just a means of affiliation culturally. So I bring this back to the analogy or it as an analogy of us today in Christianity. Now we happen to know that a lot of people out there uh, that are supposed to be Christians are not Christians in the sense that some, so really that even the term Christian changes dramatically. Uh, it's interesting to note that he, he goes on to say there that they need to produce fruit in keeping with the repentance, meaning their behavior has to fit a description of Jesus not just their affiliation with a name. Historically, we see many people who have named Christianity live atrocities and commit terrible crimes. Not to go back into the Crusades, which is some of the most embarrassing moments of the church, but those people were Christian, were Christian men, and those are the ones that heralded the name Christian and wore it and publicized that we will go and we will take over. They went into all the nations, um, not to preach, but to conquer, and really their main goal was gold anyway, and they went and got the gold, and anyone, any like with the Aztecs in Mexico, any of them that did not convert to Christianity, they beheaded them. So it's not much different than ISIL or ISIS or some of these groups that you see operate on the earth. And that was in the name of Christ. And before they did, they would pray. As Christians, God give us the power to destroy all the infidels. And they did. And they went in and butchered millions. Butchered millions in the name of Christianity. Do you think Jesus was connected to that activity? It was the culture doing it. And this is where we see one of those defining differences. It's interesting to note that the Italian mafia in my country, the United States, is decidedly and faithfully Catholic. They are very Christian. And they celebrate all the holidays and they participate and they support the church and they work and do all those things. But that's the mafia, the mob. Hitler was a Christian. 
And he claimed to be so. In Mein Kampf, his book that he wrote, he professes Christianity. He certainly didn't act like Jesus. And in fact, we see that he denied really the divinity of Christ by taking Christianity. He had a version of Christianity that he termed positive Christianity. And it was a set of doctrines that the state would dictate so that the church of Christianity within his state, in fact, became a cult that denied the divinity of Christ. But he still kept the name. So it really started me thinking a lot. I mean, I spent the whole morning since very early studying this subject, plus over the last several days, looking into it and thinking, thinking and asking God. So he turned my attention to gospel. This is what he began to speak to. The first one I asked him, I heard the gospel. And I thought, okay, right. But that term is so used, I didn't think it was a revelation that God was giving. I just said, okay, yeah, gospel, yeah, what about it? He says, no, no, the gospel. So what does that mean? So I started looking into it and to define gospel. Uh, the word gospel appears 92 times in the Bible. 92 times. As many associate with what we commonly refer to as Christianity, uh, I want to consider that much of what we call Christianity was not established by Jesus. And in fact, uh, Jesus never used the term Christian. Nor did he ever say they will be called Christians or, you know, he didn't, but he did use the word gospel. And without going into the depths of church history, of course, we know that there have been all kinds of bad things as we talked about Hitler. But Christianity is more of a, we found that Christianity is more of a designation of social orientation. Not unlike Singaporean or American or Aussie. You know, you start, you start naming your nation. You can be Indian from the, the nation of India. You can be Indonesian. And that basically comes with a lot of certain culture, ideas, mentality of that nation. The paradigm of that nation is a certain mentality there. Well, Christendom is like that. It's like a kingdom of sociopolitical values that is what they call Judeo-Christian ethics, for instance. If you studied social um, relationships in, you know, in the cosmos or what is the socio-political gatherings of men on the earth, many cultures have Judeo-Christian ethics. These are built upon principles of Christ or of the law of God. And you do not find these in some cultures. You do not find, for instance, Judeo-Christian ethics inherently in Chinese culture. But you do find it in those from Europe. Why? Because of the deep Christian roots of Europe. And so you see things like holding open doors, yes sir, no sir, yes ma'am, thank you, uh, some of the pleasantries of communication built upon consideration of other people. But all in all, we see that it's a designation of social orientation uh, more than a spiritual existence. So then it leaves us with this, well what do we call ourselves if, if, if this is just something that that the people in the society has developed and they use this term and politically or socially we use it, well, this is where the word gospel appears. And as I looked into it, uh, really it describes usually one who names Christ, the word Christian, as their base of belief, but the gospel is a greater orientation to it. So therefore, if it's good to be a Christian, provided that it fits the, the ideals that Christ taught, more commonly, we find the concept of gospel throughout the scriptures. As I said, 94 times, 
mentioned by Jesus eight times. The first scripture we read was the first mention of the word gospel. Now I want to break down the word for you too so you can see it a little better. It's a composite word. Of course, all Greek words usually are mixed words together. Uh, the beginning of it is the you part, which is good or well. Six times by itself, you is used as in good or well. And that is the first element of the word. The second element of the word, if you break down, is agelos, which is where we get the word angel, which simply means messenger. And that word is used 32 times in the Bible, always referring to a messenger, either angel or man. So then we have, uh, there's a connection to you are the first with the second, yugolizo. Now this is a verb to announce the good news. And it's used 54 times in the Bible. So 54 times in the Bible, of course all in the New Testament because it's a Greek word, someone is saying, I am going to good news you. And it means to announce, as a herald or a messenger does, news. So in old times, they would send a messenger, right? And the messenger would come running and they would announce or read a scroll in a public square or something like that. This is what it's connected to. That messenger was vocal and they would speak. And the good or well messenger is a gospel person. And so we use the word gospel, the one that appears uh, in, in its this form, 76 times in the Bible, is the noun for the announcement of good news. So this word is the one that we're really focusing on in the teaching. Because I started thinking, well, how do we understand this very thing that we live? Wow, it got so deep. As I got into it, I realized, gosh, everything, this is all we are. We are gospel people. And that's all we are connected to. And so really... I'm going to start this first part because we've gotten through this introduction. Five things the gospel is. You say, well, what is the gospel? And this is surrounding that word, good news. The announcement, actually, technically, if it was transliterated, it's like saying the declaration of good news or the announcement of good news. And so Jesus spoke. There are six times in the Bible where Jesus uses this word, yugelion, and he mentions it from the beginning of the Gospels. There are some of the times it is the same account in different Gospels, so I've eliminated those to see just the times. And it gives us a description. Now, there's five we're going to see, but the fifth really is a mention without using the word Eugelion to help you understand exactly what Gospel is. So the first thing is Gospel is testimony. Concerning Jesus. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached, the scripture we saw earlier, in the whole world as a testimony. So gospel is a testimony also to all nations. And then the end will come. So that means that we have a statute of limitations on our time on earth that is marked by the ending being that the Yuagalion or the good news will be spoken or declared to everybody on the planet. When that happens, and it is truly reaching everyone, then it says the end will come. Well, that would mean in the, in the advent of all the technologies we see today, that even I, I see farmers on the back of oxen with iPhones in their hand now. In India, in Indonesia. I mean, everybody is connecting 
So just by means of these devices, people are starting to have access to information they never had before. We are probably the closest that the planet has ever been right now to this fulfillment of Scripture. Which that one element of the many we look at concerning end times, if we start to get into eschatological descriptions or the study of end times, then we know this is one of the main things. When it is preached to everyone, well, the, the internet that right now there's people, I see people, hey guys, see people around the world watching me, my friends in different countries, because it's that simple to just stick up my laptop over here and press a button and people can hear me and relate to me. And so it is that we stand a chance of seeing this. And because the testimony, what am I doing right now? I'm testifying about God. And so my testimony is going through this device to whoever wants to watch it. Whether they watch it presently or later on, uh, they watch it at another time, which many people do, and then write me about it, or other information. We have access. I know that when Mel Gibson made the movie The Passion of the Christ, that movie went to places that you would never have been able to bring the gospel. All over Saudi Arabia. It was released in Saudi Arabia. People in Yemen watched it. Why? Because it's a movie, and people watch movies. And you'd be surprised at how much trouble the church or the Christians gave Mel Gibson for doing it. And yet it's the most successful presentation of the gospel ever made, in my opinion. And I have a lot of people that agree with that opinion. Because it went through a medium called movies. And movies are, happen to be a part of culture that everybody receives. And because it came through this, this man, Mel Gibson, who was known as an actor, he made it uh, never really known as a Christian, never really known as a believer. He just made a good historical movie as far as they were concerned. And so he got that movie under the radar. And it went out through all the world. It's no way of knowing. Only heaven would know. We would have to ask the angels that are in charge of the Lamb's Book of Life, and they would be able to tell us how many millions of people probably believed in Jesus and the sacrifice that was made. But the gospel is testimony concerning Jesus. And we keep that in mind. For as long as I have been a believer in the gospel, I have known this basic principle as a missionary, because I was trained as a missionary. And Jesus made it clear that the testimony of all believers was to be carried around the world to every nation, and then he will come. And so in this, in missions, we consider that we could possibly bring Jesus back sooner. By how? By being more fervent in our declaration in many nations, going to the unreached people, believing what Paul said, I want to go where, where Christ has not been preached. He wanted to bring the gospel where the gospel had never been. And this has motivated me for 35 years, really. And I have pushed to the edge. I have gone to places uh, in villages where I was the first person to even say Jesus. Some of the most memorable moments of my life were in villages where they had never heard the Yugalion. They had never heard the good news. And when they heard it, frankly, they, excited, they were excited about it and said, this is really good news. And they said it, of course, in Marathi. But the, the translation was, this is good news for us. And that's the first time I got a revelation of what the gospel is. The gospel literally is good news to people who've never heard it before. It's, a better, it's better news. But why then would some people then take the gospel 
and not see it as good news because it has been driven through a culture called Christianity that has misrepresented it. And so this is where we see the divergence of these two elements to make sure that we're focused as Paul is in the Bible and as Jesus is in the Bible, Jesus mentioning this, this gospel. Let's go to the second one. Number two, gospel is history concerning Jesus. In other words, this is about the narrative of Christ. So Jesus mentions, this is the second time he mentions the word gospel. When she poured this perfume on my body, she did it to prepare me for burial. Truly, I tell you, wherever this gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. So when I saw this, I really started thinking about the fact that the gospel is history. The gospel is a narrative the story of Jesus. The first element, testimony, is what we speak from our opinion. What you know of the gospel, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, its reality to you is your testimony. But this, the history, is talking about actual scripture and story. Because he's talking about a woman who did a thing that, of course, they were upset. And this beautiful part of the narrative of the life of Jesus as the gospel was pointed out by Jesus as a necessary part of the story. And so they tried to disqualify her for it because it was a waste of money. The disciples saw it as a waste because they were only focused on the immediate concerns of life. They were looking to finance the ministry. They were looking to take care of the poor. They knew there were a lot of poor. Also related to this same is when Jesus says, the poor you have with us are always. You'll always have the poor. But there are times things have to be done in the name of declaration of the gospel, the gospel itself being published. And I started thinking about this. It's important that we never put a dollar value on spiritual happenings. Because the gospel is spiritual. Uh, where Christianity can be very physical, the gospel cannot. It can only be spiritual. Because it is exactly the good news of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, which we will find out in detail next week when we go into all of Paul's writings about this word. But right now we're just sticking primarily with, with Jesus. And so she poured this perfume on my body. They were upset about it. You know, crusades and outreaches around the world have, have brought millions of people to a decision about Christ. We see ministries like that of Reinhard Bunker. <clears throat> we see ministries throughout the years, great evangelists. And it's hard for us to put a dollar value on that. How can you say, oh, it's a big waste of money? You might if you saw how much Reinhard Bunker paid for some of those meetings. One meeting could cost $2 million. One meeting. Think about that. And so if you spend that much money, what comes after that? Then you just spent $2 million. It's gone. And then tomorrow we just have a field full of litter that somebody has to clean up because all those people left and went home. But something spiritual happened. And this is where we need to make sure to never put a dollar value on a spiritual happening. That moment that Jesus came into Jerusalem, the triumphal entry of Christ, when everyone worked so hard and tore the palm branches down out of the trees. They laid their garments on the road. It was such a big to-do. That Hosanna moment was a great expenditure of energy and resources. And then after that, I always picture the road after everybody was gone. That night, somebody's got to clean up those palm branches and those soiled 
garments that are just laying in the mud and stuck down there. And there's a big mess. So where's the value of that? Of course, it's a great value. Why? Because it was a part of the story of Jesus. We tell the story, and it's exciting. We tell the story of this woman anointing him for burial. And that is the gospel. The gospel is history concerning Jesus, and it helps us understand. So this woman was inadvertently playing a role in the history of the gospel, doing an act of love that seemed wasteful. But it's so funny that we could have trouble with something like this, but think about how much money is spent on Marvel, making the Avengers and Endgame. I've seen Endgame. I won't tell you anything about it if you haven't seen it, of course. But we see these movies that, of course, it made $157 million its first day of release as U.S. dollars. One day, 150 I don't know what they spent on the thing. It's probably in, in above $200 million. I'll look into it. Whatever the case, the, the financiers of said project are not nervous. They're happy. They have champagne and glasses. We did it again, guys. Marvel is a phenomenon. Now, but it's funny. We now, having to go see it, will have to spend $13, $14, $15 on a ticket. But that's worth it. But what do you have to show after that? We don't even think, you know, it's nothing. No, it's just, it's fun. I love that movie. It was great to go see it. But what do you have to show after? What can you bring out of that other than an experience? How much more valuable the gospel, the story of Jesus. And this is what's so important. And of course, there are people trying to produce greater and greater renditions of the gospel through media. I saw one the other day advertised, and I looked at the trailer of it. It looks pretty good, actually. It's a little more colloquial, a little more human than usual. Jesus doesn't have this real strong, you know, 18th century accent. He's, he's, you know, they're not speaking King James. They kind of talk like an American almost, which to me as an American is interesting. But I re a couple of scenes I saw, it brought tears to my eyes because it is how I've imagined it. So I'm glad that they're making these shows and these things about the gospel because it's a furtherance of gospel, because it's history. Gospel is history concerning Jesus. And thank God we have the gospel according to Luke and the gospel according to Matthew and the gospel according to Mark, meaning that there are a variation of gospels because why? History or stories being told Testimonies, the former one, but this one also, will vary according to the eyewitness. Your gospel, and this is we won't even get into this tonight for the sake of time, but next week we're going to look into variations of gospel and that how many different gospels there are. Now, Christianity was just one small gospel that was connected to that, but there was the way, which was gospel. So these terms, the way, believers, those of Christ, different things they call them, Christians, those are terms used to describe all the same thing, which is gospel. So this, for me, is an orientation into what matters for me. This is what matters. And believe me, Paul has a lot to say about it. And he speaks so much. He uses this word more than anybody else. And we'll get into that another time. But now we're just looking at what Jesus said. Number three, gospel is living for Jesus in persecution. Now, this is the thing. A gospel, the story, the history, 
that we've seen, the testimony, if we live gospel, there will be a price to pay. That's a guarantee. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. It caught my eye that Jesus says himself, so this says Jesus is not the gospel, but the gospel is like a living entity that describes Jesus or speaks of Jesus, and that's why it's so important. So Jesus does not separate himself from it when it comes to our need to proclaim it. When we do proclaim it, then we will maybe get in the trouble, maybe even get killed, and this will happen. People will die for their confession of Christ. But I also know Christians who have died because they were mad that some people tore a cross off their building. And they rallied and got a mob together and went to attack the people who attacked their church and tore their little cross off their building. Were they doing that in the name of Jesus? No, they were doing that in the name of Christianity. They were trying to defend a religious icon, but they lost their lives as a result. I actually know people who knew these people, and they told me the story. This was in a neighboring country. And those people died because they got mad. Why? They didn't get mad by the Spirit of Christ. They got mad by the Spirit of Christendom. So their culture rose as a political force that went to war, and that's where we see the problem come in. And Jesus never advocated that activity. Who lives by the sword dies by the sword. Put your sword away, Peter. Put Malchus's ear back on. That's not the way we do it. Let's call fire down on the village. You don't even know what spirit you're of, he told them. That's not us. Because we are gospel. And gospel requires a price to be paid. Mark 10, 29, truly I tell you, Jesus replied, no one who has left home or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for me and the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age, homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, and fields, along with persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. So of the four times that Jesus uses this word, this is one of the contexts that he uses concerning persecution and the price they get paid. So gospel is living for Jesus in persecution. Now, if you find yourself in a, in a primarily Christian culture, then this does not apply. Because you are like everybody else. I can go to places on, on the planet where my basic confession of Christianity will not be challenged at all because they're all Christians. It's easy. And that was easy. It was easy for me to live at peace within Mexico because it's a Christian country, primarily Catholic, because I was raised Catholic. I was okay to say, yeah, I was raised Catholic my whole life. And so they didn't have a problem with me. Why? Because the cultural paradigm didn't vary. It didn't matter. Then I was able to bring the gospel. And it was very effective. That's how the churches were planted. That's how the churches grew. That's how we saw God do things in that nation. Gospels living for Jesus in persecution. However, when I went to India, it was a little different. I remember the moment, one of the most tense moments of my life. My vehicle had some problems, and I needed to have some repairs done at the mechanic. And uh, at that time, they kept me pretty much sequestered into the, the Christian neighborhood called Icy Colony. And so there in Icy Colony, literally immaculate conception colony. I mean, it was like 
every major office of every church denomination was in that neighborhood within a three block space. There was Christ of the Nations office and the Baptist office and the Methodist, like every, because it was a safe zone. And you could go in there and people like Myra lived there. And a lot of Goans, who were primarily Catholic, some the one of the biggest Christian groups of the nation, and that was settled and protected. And they have a huge Catholic church, and they have Catholic festivals and Christian groups, and all the 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 Pentecostal groups also are based in that realm, because people from the other religions do not come into that neighborhood because they wouldn't want to go in there anyway because it's kind of detestable. Now, they're mixed there, but they know they cannot rock the boat in that area because well, so I lived there, and I was kind of kept hidden there. But I wanted to go see the real people and interact more with people, and so and I did, and I found out that this is true. And one of the most contrasting moments for me, and when I saw how gospel affects people, was I was getting the vehicle repaired. They saw that I was a foreigner. They were fascinated. I spoke just enough Hindi to get along. And they were asking me questions about this, that, and the other. And some spoke some English. And so they were speaking to me. And we all, they were so happy. This foreign guy shook my hand. Welcome to India. You know, so we're having a great time talking. And there was this moment, and I'll never forget because it stands frozen in time, that the guy that was most energetic in the group, he was very animated talking and and all the rest just kind of followed his lead he then said he was a driver for trucks and they were all drivers and so he backed up and he said oh this is after we were talking for like 45 minutes about life and food and how much i like babaji and you know all this stuff and so he backed up and he pointed right there in the front windshield of his vehicle with the little blinking lights in there was ganesh on a little throne in there. And he said, this is my God. Just like that. I just like, just pointed at and said, this, he was so proud. I said, oh. And he said, who is your God? Just like that. And I said, I believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And when I said that, every single person in the circle did this. And in darkness came over the place. I was, I felt goosebumps, fear, a spirit of fear. And they stopped talking and they started changing glances at each other. And I, that was one of the most fearful moments because I didn't know what was next. So I thank God in his mercy that the man said, um, Stephen, come. And he called me because my ticket came up and I had to go talk to the mechanic about the work that was being done. And I got out, but then they all got it in a group and they were talking and looking back and talking and looking back. I was scared. So what did you do, Stephen? Did you confront your fears? No, I got in my car and left quickly. Because I have a principle that states that, you know, he who, he who learns to run away lives to preach another day. But I felt, and I had a few moments. I had moments like that in Indonesia. I had moments like that in India. I had moments like that in Mexico, in the mountains. I had very scary moments where you know in that moment that this could go really bad, really fast. And I learned to know that feeling. Uh, mobism. That's what I call it. There's a spirit of mob. When people 
follow a character, an individual, they will do inhuman things, and a spirit will take the collective group. It's kind of how the church works. The church works in a collection, and there's power. If one can put a thousand, two, ten thousand, the synergy, the synergy of negative energy is the same. And that's why when they mob, they will slaughter and they will kill and they will destroy with smiles on their faces. It's only after the act that they feel the remorse and the guilt. And they do inevitably have to deal with that when they martyr people and they kill people. Because I've met people that were involved in such mobs and told me when it happened, it's like there was some unseen force that just carried us all. So yeah, it was a spirit. And the gospel is like a fuse to that. It is nothing, nothing as, as irritating as the gospel. When it truly comes out, it, it's like setting off an incendiary device and people will be incensed. It happened to me more than a few times also in Indonesia. I've had in deep, deep areas, talking to people and relating to them, everything was fine until I was pressed to speak of what I believe. And when it came out, darkness. Because that's the gospel. Gospel is living for Jesus in persecution. The next one, we go on number, number four. Gospel is the commission for the church given from Jesus. Mark 16, 15, we all know this verse. He said to them, go into all the world and preach the gospel to all creation. And this is the last time Jesus uses the word as in the final commission before his ascension into heaven. He said, okay, I'm all done. Now it's your turn. Go and preach the gospel. Bring it to every nation. Bring it to all the people. So actually we see two words that Jesus made Himself, he basically he invented these words. Later on, the people of God used them, but Jesus is the one that used these words for the first time in this context. And the other word that's related to this is church, because we've studied ecclesia before. You know that Jesus also invented that word. He said the called out group. So you have the the good news announcement, and the good news announcers are called evangelists. An evangelist is just a, a form of euagalistis. And so we say evangelist, it just means a gospelator or a good newser. And so that word is used, but then I noticed Jesus actually, he had two words that he made. And so when I started looking into it, I got revelation on it, that uh, one word is, is used to describe his kingdom and its orientation and, and church and gospel. Church is the people together, and gospel is the message we speak. And you cannot take these apart from one another. If, because we're called out of darkness into his marvelous light, the church is a gathering of souls into a belief of something. Right? So we are here in the unity of one simple belief, and that is the gospel. So the real gospel, and there are false gospels, we'll get to that next week. The real gospel is the glue that holds the ecclesia or the church together. Because we all stand around the truth of the gospel. Gospel is important. And Paul is the one that really fleshes out what the gospel is. 
in his writings. But here, so, you know, we see two words that Jesus made to describe his kingdom and its orientation, church and gospel. Ecclesia and Euagelion. Those two words, the people, for what? What do we do? We all we come all together, but for what purpose? Go and wait for the promise of the Father. You receive power to be witnesses. We already saw that the gospel is testimony. The gospel is the story. It is the proclamation that we give. So we come to the last one. Number five, Romans 10, verses 8 and 10, and this is the gospel is salvation. So how do you get saved? Well, we know it says it here. What does it say? The word is near you. It is in your mouth and in your heart. That is the message concerning faith that we proclaim. Now, this scripture by Paul is describing the gospel. Although he does not use the word gospel here, I used it because it clearly says the message he proclaims. Everywhere else, in every other passage, he describes his message as the gospel. This gospel that I receive, this gospel that I teach, this gospel that I preach, the gospel that the Lord gave to me, the gospel that I gave to you. He uses it all the time, but we see a definition of what it is to describe what is gospel. Well, gospel is salvation because it's the message concerning faith that we proclaim. If you declare with your mouth, in other words, if an announcement is made through your lips, Jesus is Lord, and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it is with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. So gospel is not a kept secret. Gospel is salvation by declaration. When the gospel comes out of your mouth to any other human being on this planet, you are saved. That is salvation. Isn't that beautiful? So the gospel saves us. If we dare let it out of our mouth. When I was only uh, maybe 14, uh, I heard the gospel from someone. And it's very, they put it so simply, and they had one of those little tracks, you know, with the little pictures, little cartoon in it, the chick track. Those that have been prohibited the use of here in Singapore, I think primarily because some of them are very controversial. People also put them in the mail and got arrested and they're serving prison terms for sedition against the state because they were anti-religion of other religions. But anyway, one of those little booklets in America, they kind of flipped through it and I looked at it and it's just so simple. You know, those diagrams, it's so simple. And I thought, well, who doesn't believe that? I said, they said, do you believe this? And I said, yeah, I believe that. The gospel came out of my mouth. And I felt this feeling come over me. And I immediately turned around and walked away from them to my brother, who was working on his automobile, and that's when I told him. I said to him, I said, you know what, Kenny? said, they were telling me about what? And I said, they were telling me about uh, Jesus how Jesus died, he was buried, and he rose again. Before I could finish saying rose again, he spun around and he said, you stupid. You listen to those people? You're an idiot. Because he was my older brother. I said, no, no, I'm just kidding. When I said I was just kidding, I pulled the gospel back in and blotted my own name out of Lamb's Book of Life before it could even be written. It was close, though. 
And it was. And thank God, God is the God of second chances. And later at the age of 17, I had the opportunity to do that. Imagine if I had died in the interim. Oh my God. I'd have been bound forever to hell. Because I denied him. You deny him before men, he'll deny you before the Father. I confessed him just for a moment, just like a three-minute window. And my brother and his force and the fact that he's my elder brother drove it out of me and I let it go. And this cold feeling of death swept over me. And it wasn't until years later that I actually received Christ. Gospel is salvation. Not just believing the message about Jesus dying and rising from the grave, but also declaring that message. And this is how we get our names in the Lamb's Book of Life. As soon as the gospel comes out, the angels are basically trained to recognize gospel utterances. So they're not listening to anything else. And I imagine they have some type of sophisticated spiritual technology up there that can monitor simultaneously the utterances of all humans across the earth because it says every idle word that you speak you will be judged by it so how can possibly the heavens and the workforce of heaven know every single word that we ever speak if they didn't have some super high-tech equipment of some sort spirit whatever they know everything and they have an alarm system that springs into action as soon as gospel comes out of somebody's mouth and they hear it, they ding, it comes out, then they know. If you just believe it and speak it to someone else, and salvation comes. And of course, you have to do a lot after that. You have to live faithfully. Uh, you have to guard that faith. You have to hold that faith. You have to take a, a tight grip on your salvation. The Bible says work out your salvation with fear and trembling. So there's a lot to it after that. But the initiation of it is simple gospel. That is how we get saved. And I thank God. I want to end with an Old Testament passage. Isaiah 52, 7. This is the only mention. This is the gospel, but in the Old Testament. Because the prophet was prophesying the coming of it. How beautiful on the mountains are the feet of those who bring good news, who proclaim peace, who bring good tidings, who proclaim salvation, who say to Zion, your God reigns. So here Isaiah was using the same term. I'm not sure of this. Any theologians out there that might be watching, probably in the Septuagint, which is a Greek version of the Old Testament, the word euagalion or some permutation of it is used here because it's the same principle. Good news, good tidings. But we see it connected to salvation again. So this was the prophecy, a messianic prophecy about what would happen in the age of Christ when the good news would come. And it is beautiful. The feet of those who bring good news. But when we carry that gospel to the nations, to the people. So the gospel, we see summation of what we covered tonight, defining gospel. It's the first part of this, this message that we'll do the second part next week. Five things the gospel is. Gospel is testimony concerning Jesus. Number two, gospel is history concerning Jesus. Number three, uh, gospel is living for Jesus in persecution. That's a fact. Because this is what came out of Jesus' mouth in association with that word. Gospel is the commission for the church given from Jesus. It's the mandate that Jesus gave us. Go preach the gospel. He said, this has got to come out of your mouth. And then gospel is salvation. And that's why he knew you want to get saved, you have to say this. 
go out and say this. Do you want to feel more saved than you are now? Go say it to somebody. It works. Every taxi uncle, every kopitiam auntie, when I tell them about Jesus, that Jesus died for them, when I share what I believe, I feel so happy. And, and I shared my faith many times with, uh, remember Edwin over at the restaurant? Um, I was walking by there the other day. He grabbed me. He looked really different and bright and happy. And he says, I just want to let you know. I just have to tell you. He says, I absolutely have received Jesus. I, before, I was just thinking about it. He says, but no. He made it very clear. He says, Jesus is in my heart. I mean, I, I'm, God is blessing me. And like, I was like, dude, that's so awesome, man. You are like really saved. How did I know he was saved? Because gospel was pouring out of his mouth. And his hair was cut neater. And his face was lighter and his eyes were clearer. Already you could see the change in his physical body. He still had a cigarette behind his back. But he's coming along. I don't have an issue with that. I mean, God deals with each individual. But he's coming along. God's doing a great work in him. And the gospel's coming out of his mouth. And he's telling other people about it. So it's very exciting to see how the gospel works. Amen? God is so good.